Part 3 Chapter 1 The Red Bull in Cheapside was all alight. A party had arrived there from the coast not an hour ago, and the rooms that had been bespoken by courier occupied the greater part of the second floor. The rest of the house was already filled by another large company, spoken for by Mr. Babington, although he himself was not one of them. And it seemed to the shrewd landlord that these two parties were not wholly unknown to one another, although, as a discreet man, he said nothing. The latest arrived party was plainly come from the coast. They had arrived a little after sunset on this stormy August day, splashed to the shoulders by the summer mud, and drenched to the skin by the heavy thunder showers. Their baggage had a battered and sea-going air about it, and the landlord thought he would not be far away if he conjectured Rames as their starting point. There were three gentlemen in the party, and four servants apparently, but he knew better than to ask questions or to overhear what seemed rather over-familiar conversation between the men and their masters. There was only one, however, whom he remembered to have lodged before, over five years ago. The name of this one was Mr. Alban. But all this was not his business. His duty was to be hardy and deferential and entirely stupid, and certainly this course of behavior brought him a quantity of guests. Mr. Alban, about half-past nine o'clock, had finished unstrapping his luggage. It was of the most innocent description, and contained nothing that all the world might not see. He had made arrangements that articles of another kind should come over from Rames under the care of one of the servants, whose baggage would be less suspected. The distribution would take place in a day or two. These articles comprised five sets of altar vessels, five sets of mass vestments, made of a stuff woven of all the liturgical colors together, a dozen books, a box of medals, another of Agnus Dei, little wax medallions stamped with the figure of a lamb supporting a banner, a bunch of beads, and a heavy little square package of very thin altar stones. As he laid out the suit of clothes that he proposed to wear next day, there was a rapping on his door. Mr. Babington has come, sir. The last word was added as an obvious afterthought in case of listeners. Robin sprang up. The door was opened by his servant, and Anthony came in, smiling. Mr. Anthony Babington had broadened and aged considerably during the last five years. He was still youthful-looking, but he was plainly a man and no longer a boy, and he presently said as much for his friend. "'You are a man, Robin,' he said. "'Why, it slipped my mind.' He knelt down promptly on the strip of carpet and kissed the palms of the hands held out to him, as is the custom to do with newly ordained priests, and Robin murmured a blessing. Then the two sat down again. "'And now for the news,' said Robin. Anthony's face grew grave. "'Yours first, he said. So Robin told him. He had been ordained priest a month ago at Chalon-sur-Marne. The college was as full as it could hold. They had had an unadventurous journey. Anthony put a question or two and was answered. "'And now,' said Robin, "'what of Derbyshire, and of the country, and of my father? And is it true that Ballard is taken?' Anthony threw an arm over the back of his chair and tried to seem at his ease. Well, he said, Derbyshire is as it ever was. You heard of Thomas Fitzherbert's defection? Mistress Manners wrote to me of it more than two years ago. Well, he does what he can. He comes and goes with his wife or without her, but he comes no more to Padley, and he scarcely makes a feint even before strangers of being a Catholic, though he has not declared himself, nor gone to church, at any rate in his own county. Here in London I have seen him more than once in Topcliffe's company." but I think that every Catholic in the country knows of it by now. That is Mistress Manners' doing. My sister says there has never been a woman like her. Robin's eyes twinkled. I always said so, he said, but none would believe me. She has the wit and courage of twenty men. What has she been doing? What has she not done? cried Anthony. She keeps herself for the most part in her house, and my sister spends a great deal of time with her, but her men, who would die for her, I think, go everywhere, 
and half the hog herds and shepherds of the peak are her sworn men. I have given Dick to her. He was mad to do what he could in that cause. So her men go this way and that, bearing her letters or her messages to priests who are on their way through the county, and she gets news, God knows how, of what is a-stirring against us. She has saved Mr. Ludlam twice, and Mr. Garlick once, as well as Mr. Simpson once, by getting the news to them of their pursuit events coming, and having them away into the peak. And yet with all this she has never been laid by the heels. Have they been after her, then? asked Robin eagerly. They have had a spy in her house twice, to my knowledge, but never openly, and never a shred of a priest's gown to be seen, though mass had been said there that day. But they have never searched it by force, and I think they do not truly suspect her at all. Did I not say so? cried Robin. And what of my father? He wrote to me that he was to be made magistrate, and I have never written to him since. He hath been made magistrate, said Anthony dryly, and he sits on the bench with the rest of them. Then he is all of the same mind? I know nothing of his mind. I have never spoken with him this six years back. I know his acts only. His name was in the bond of association, too. I have heard of that. Why, it is two years old now. Half the gentry of England have joined it, said Anthony bitterly. It is to persecute to the death any pretender to the crown other than our Eliza. There was a pause. Robin understood the bitterness. And what of Mr. Ballard? asked Robin. Yes, he is taken, said Anthony slowly, watching him. He was taken a week ago. Will they banish him, then? I think they will banish him. Why, yes, it is the first time he hath been taken, and there is nothing great against him? I think there is not, said Anthony, still with that strange deliberateness. Why do you look at me like that? Anthony stood up without answering. Then he began to pace about. As he passed the door, he looked to the bolt carefully. Then he turned again to his friend. Robin, he said, would you sooner know a truth that will make you unhappy or be ignorant of it? Does it concern myself or my business? asked Robin promptly. It concerns you and every priest and every Catholic in England. It is what I have hinted to you before. Then I will hear it. It is as if I told it in confession? Robin paused. You may make it so, he said, if you choose. Anthony looked at him an instant. Well, he said, I will not make a confession because there is no use in that now, but, well, listen, he said and sat down. When he ceased, Robin lifted his head. He was as white as a sheet. You have been refused absolution before for this? I was refused absolution by two priests, but I was granted it by a third. Let me see that I have the tale right. Yourself, with a number of others, have bound yourselves by an oath to kill her grace and to set Mary on the throne. This has taken shape now since the beginning of the summer. You yourself are now living in Mr. Walsingham's house, in Seething Lane, under the patronage of her grace, and you show yourself freely at court. You have proceeded so far, under fear of Mr. Ballard's arrest, as to provide one of your company with clothes and necessaries that can enable him to go to court. And it was your intention, as well as his, that he should take opportunity to kill her grace. But today only you have become persuaded that the old design was the better, and you wish first to arrange matters with the Queen of the Scots, so that when all is ready you may be the more sure of arising when that her grace is killed, and that the Duke of Parma may be in readiness to bring an army into England. Is it still your intention to kill her grace? By God it is, said Anthony, between clenched teeth. Then I could not absolve you, even if you came to confession. You may be absolved from your allegiance, as we all are, but you are not absolved from charity and justice towards Elizabeth as a woman. I have consulted theologians on the very point, and... Then Anthony sprang up. See here, Robin, we must talk this out. He flicked his fingers sharply. See, we will talk of it as two friends. You had better take back those words, said the priest gravely. Why? 
It would be my duty to lay an information. I understood you spoke to me as a priest, though not in confession. You would? blazed the other. I should do so in conscience, said the priest. But you have not yet told me as a friend, and... You mean... I mean that so long as you choose to speak to me of it, now and here, it remains that I choose to regard it as sub sigillo in effect. But you must not come to me tomorrow, as if I knew it all in a plain way. I do not. I know it as a priest only. There was silence for a moment. Then Anthony stood up. I understand, he said. But you would refuse me absolution in any case? I could not give you absolution so long as you intended to kill her grace. Anthony made an impatient gesture. See here, he said. Let me tell you the whole matter from the beginning. Now listen. He settled himself again in his chair and began. Robin, he said, you remember when I spoke to you in the inn on the way to Matstead? It must be seven or eight years gone now. Well, that was when the beginning was. There was no design then, such as we have today, but the general purpose was there. I had spoken with man after man. I had been to France and seen Mr. Morgan there, Queen Mary's man, and my lord of Glasgow. And all that I spoke with seemed of one mind, except my lord of Glasgow, who did not say much to me on the matter. But all at least were agreed that there would be no peace in England so long as Elizabeth sat on the throne. Well, it was after that that I fell in with Ballard, who was over here on some other affair, and I found him a man of the same mind as myself. He was all agog for Mary, and seemed afraid of nothing. Well, nothing was done for a great while. He wrote to me from France. I wrote back to him again, telling him the names of some of my friends. I went to see him in France two or three times, and I saw him here, when you yourself came over with him. But we did not know whom to trust. Neither had we any special design. Her grace of the Scots sent hither and thither under strong guards, and what I had done for her before... What was that? he said. Anthony again made his impatient gesture. He was fiercely excited, but kept himself under tolerable control. Why, I have been her agent for a great while back, getting her letters through to her and such like. But last year, when that damn Sir Amnius Paulet became her jailer, I could do nothing. Two or three times my messenger was stopped, and the letters were taken from him. Well, after that time I could do no more. There her grace was, back again at Tutbury, and none could get near her. She might no more give alms even to the poor, and all her letters must go through Walsingham's hands. And then God helped us. She was taken last autumn to Chartley, nearby which is the house of the Giffords. And since that time we have been almost merry. Do you know Gilbert Gifford? He hath been with the Jesuits, hath he not? That is the man. Well, Mr. Gilbert Gifford hath been God's angel to us. A quiet, still kind of man. You have seen him? I have spoken with him at Rames, said Robin. I know nothing of him. Well, he contrived the plan. He hath devised a beer barrel that hath the beer all round about, so that when they push their rods in, there seems all beer within. But in the heart of the beer there is secured a little iron case, and within the iron case there is space for papers. Well, this barrel goes to and fro to Chartley, and to a brewer that is a good Catholic, and within the case there are the letters, and in this way all has been prepared. Robin looked up again. He remained quiet through all the story, and lifted no more than his eyes. His fingers played continually with a button on his doublet. You mean that Queen Mary hath consented to this? Why, yes. To her sister's death? Why, yes. I do not believe it, said the priest quietly. On whose word does that stand? Why, on her own. Who else's? snapped Anthony. You mean you have it in her own hand, signed by her name? It is in Gifford's hand. Is that not enough? And there is her seal to it. It is in cipher, of course. What would you have? Where is she now? asked Robin, paying no attention to the question. She hath just now been moved again to Tixall. For what? I do not know. What has that to do with the matter? She will be back again soon. I tell you all is arranged. Tell me the rest of the story, said the priest. There is not much more. So it stands at present. 
I tell you, her grace hath been tossed to and fro like a ball at play. She was at Chatsworth, as you know. She has been shut up at Chartley like a criminal. She was at Babington House, even. God, if I had but known it in time. In Babington House? Why, when was that? Last year, early, with Sir Ralph Sadler, who was her jailer then, cried Anthony bitterly. But for a night only, I have sold the house. Sold it? I do not keep prisons, snapped Anthony. I will have none of it. Well? Well, resumed the other man quietly, I must say that when Ballard was taken... When was that? Last week only. Well, when he was taken, I thought perhaps all was known, but I find Mr. Walsingham's conversation very comforting, though little he knows it, poor man. He knows that I am a Catholic, and he was lamenting to me only three days ago of the zeal of these informers. He said he could not save Ballard, so hot was the pursuit after him, that he would lose favor with her grace if he did. What comfort is there in that? Why, it shows plain enough that nothing is known of the true facts. If they were after him for this design of ours, do you think that Walsingham would speak like that? He would clap us all in ward long ago. The young priest was silent. His head still whirled with the tale, and his heart was sick at the misery of it all. This was scarcely the homecoming he had looked for. He turned abruptly to the other. Anthony, lad, he said, I beseech you to give it up. Anthony smiled at him frankly. His excitement was sunk down again. You were always a little soft, he said. I remember you would have naught to do with us before. Why, we are at war, I tell you, and it is not we who declared it. They have made war on us now for the last twenty years and more. What of all the Catholics, priests, and others who have died on the gibbet or rotted in prison? If her grace makes war upon us, why should we not make war upon her grace? Tell me that, then. Anthony, I beseech you to give it up. I hate the whole matter, and fear it, too. Fear it? Why, I tell you, we hold them so. He stretched out his lean young hand and clenched the long fingers slowly together. We have them by the throat. You will be glad enough to profit by it when Mary reigns. What is there to fear? I do not know. I am uneasy. But that is not to the purpose. I tell you it is forbidden by gods. Uneasy? Fear it? Why, tell me what there is to fear. What hole can you find anywhere? I do not know. I hardly know the tale yet. But it seems to me there might be a hundred. Tell me one of them, then. Anthony threw himself back with an indulgent smile on his face. Why, if you will have it, said Robin, roused by the contempt, there is one great hole in this. All hangs upon Gifford's word, as it seems to me. You have not spoken with Mary. You have not even her own hand on it. Bah! Why, her grace of the Scots cannot write in cipher, do you think? I do not know how that may be. It may be so. But I say that all hangs upon Gifford. And you think Gifford can be a liar and a knave? sneered Anthony. I have not one word against him, said the priest. But neither had I against Thomas Fitzherbert, and you know what has befallen. Anthony snorted with disdain. Put your finger through another hole, he said. Well, I like not the comfort that Mr. Secretary Walsingham has given you. You told me a while ago that Ballard was on the eve of going to France. Now Walsingham is no fool. I would to God he were. He has laid enough of our men by the heels already. By God, cried Anthony, roused again. I would not willingly call you a fool either, my man. But do you not understand that Walsingham believes me as loyal as himself? Here have I been at court for the last year, bowing before her grace, and never a word said to me on my religion. And here is Walsingham has bidden me to lodge in his house, in the midst of all his spider's webs. Do you think he would do that if... I think he might have done so, said Robin slowly. Anthony sprang to his feet. My Robin, he said, you were right enough when you said you would not join with us. You were not made for this work. You would see an enemy in your own father. He stopped, confounded. Robin smiled drearily. I have seen one in him, he said. Anthony clapped him on the shoulder, not unkindly. Forgive me, my Robin, I did not think what I said. Well, we will leave it at that, and you would not give me absolution? The priest shook his head. Then give me your blessing, 
said Anthony, dropping on his knees, and so we will close up the quasi-sigillum confessionis. It was a heavy-hearted priest that presently, downstairs, stood with Anthony in one of the guest rooms and was made known to half a dozen strangers. Every word that he had heard upstairs must be as if it had never been spoken, from the instant at which Anthony had first sat down to the instant in which he had kneeled down to receive his blessing. So much he knew from his studies at Rheims. He must be to each man that he met that which he would have been to him an hour ago. Yet, though as a man he must know nothing, his priest's heart was heavy in his breast. It was a strange homecoming, to pass from the ordered piety of the college to the whirl of politics and plots in which good and evil spanned round together. Honest and fiery zeal for God's cause mingled with what he was persuaded was crime and abomination. He had thought that a priest's life would be a simple thing, but it seemed otherwise now. He spoke with those half-dozen men, those who knew him well enough for a priest, and presently, when some of his own party came, drew aside again with Anthony, who began to tell him in a low voice of the personages there. "'These are all my private friends,' he said." and some of them be men of substance in their own place. There is Mr. Charnot of Lancashire, he with the gilt sword. He is of the court of her grace, and comes and go as he pleases. He is lodged in Whitehall, and comes here but to see his friends. And there is Mr. Savage in the new clothes, with his beard cut short. He is a very honest fellow, but of a small substance, though of good family enough. Her grace has some of her ladies, too, that are Catholics, has she not? asked Robin. There are two or three at least, and no trouble made. They hear mass when they can at the embassies. Mendoza is a very good friend of ours. Mr. Charnock came up presently to the two. He was a cheerful-looking man of northern descent, very particular in his clothes, with large gold earrings. He wore a short, pointed beard above his stiff ruff, and his eyes were bright and fanatical. You are from Rames, I understand, Mr. Albin. He sat down with something of an air next to Robin. And your county? he asked. I am from Derbyshire, sir, said Robin. From Derbyshire? Then you will have heard of Mistress Marjorie Manners, no doubt. She is an old friend of mine, said Robin, smiling. The man had a great personal charm about him. You are very happy in your friends, then, said the other. I have never spoken with her myself, but I hear of her continually as assisting our people, sending them now up into the peak country, now into the towns, as the case may be, and never a mistake. It was delightful to Robin to hear her praised, and he talked of her keenly and volubly. Exactly that had happened which five years ago he would have thought impossible for every trace of his old feeling towards her was gone, leaving behind, and that only in the very deepest intimacies of his thought, a sweet and pleasant romance, like the glow in the sky when the sun has gone down. Little by little that had come about which, in Marjorie, had transformed her when she first sent him to Rames. It was not that reaction had followed. There was no contempt, either of her or of himself, for what he had once thought of her, but another great passion had risen above it, a passion of which the human lover cannot even guess, kindled for one that is greater than man. A passion fed, trained, and pruned by those six years of studious peace at Rheims, directed by experts in humanity. There he had seen what love can do when it could rise higher than its human channels. He had seen young men, scarcely older than himself, set out for England as for their bridles, exultant and on fire. And back to Rheims had come again the news of their martyrdom. This one died, crying to Jesu as a homecoming child cries to his mother at the garden gate. This one had said nothing upon the scaffold, but his face, they said who brought the news, had been as the face of Stephen at his stoning and others had come back themselves, banished with pain of death on their returning, yet back once more these had gone. And last, more than once, there had crept back to Rames, borne on a litter all the way from the coast, the phantom of a man who a year or two ago had played cat and shouted at the play, now a bent man, grey-haired, with great scars on wrists and ankles. Te Deums had been sung in the college chapel when the news of the deaths had come. There were no requiems for such as these, and the place of the martyr in the refectory was decked with flowers. Robin had seen these things, and wondered whether his place too would some day be so decked. For Marjorie, then, he felt nothing but a happy friendliness, and a real delight when he thought of seeing her again. 
It was glorious, he thought, that she had done so much, that her name was in all men's mouths, and he had thought, when he had first gone to Rames, that he would do all and she nothing. He had written to her then, freely and happily. He had told her that she must give him shelter some day, as she was doing for so many. Meanwhile, it was pleasant to hear her praises. "'Eve would be Eve,' quoted Mr. Sharnock presently, in speaking of pious women's obstinacy, though Adam would say nay. Then at last, when Mr. Sharnock said that he must be leaving for his own lodgings and stood up, once more upon Robin's heart there fell the horrible memory of all that he had heard upstairs.' 